I'm Don Tapscott. And I'm Alex Tapscott. And this is What's on Tap for this week. Alex, another week. Uh, unbelievable. Um, what, what's uh, big in your mind? Well, the news item that's been uh, dominating discussions is the crypto provision that was in the U.S. infrastructure bill. So we actually spoke about this last week. Um, and at the time, it was far from clear how all of this was going to play out. We now have a bit more clarity, um, but I would say that the battle is not over. So just to catch everybody up, basically what happened was the crypto, uh, excuse me, the infrastructure bill, which is this massive $1 trillion plus bill that has to do with you know railroads and bridges and tunnels and so forth, had in it this thing called a pay for, which is basically a provision that says how you're gonna pay for all this stuff. And the only pay for was uh, basically a revision to the rules around how crypto um, as an industry would be regulated. The objective was to raise, you know, $28 billion of taxes. Um, but the net effect of the law, as it was originally written, um, could potentially create all sorts of sweeping changes um, to how we think about this industry and how it's governed and regulated. So to make a long story short, over the last six or seven days, there have been you know, amendments, counter amendments, um, proposals that would have addressed all these issues. And at the last moment, um, miraculously, there was a compromise that had the uh, assent of both parties and also of the Biden administration and the Treasury Department. So it looked like it was all good to go. Uh, however, the amendment, uh, because it's not a vote on the bill, but a vote on the amendment, had to pass by unanimous consent. And otherwise it needed to have a hundred of a hundred senators say yes. And one guy, um, an 87 year old senator who from Alabama, who's retiring, um, said no. And the reason was not that he, you know, is against cryptocurrency. The guy probably doesn't even use email. You know, he doesn't know how to open a PDF probably. Um, the, the real issue is that he had a separate unrelated amendment for 50 billion of military spending, which was also not approved. And so he's like, well, if you're not gonna approve my amendment, I'm not gonna approve any, any else. So democracy in action. Anyway, the key outcome of all of this was that none of the new amended language made it in. And so the original language uh, is what's in the bill today. And just to re remind everyone why we think this is important, basically the objective is the, of the bill um, so as the authors state, is to ensure that brokers, so companies like Coinbase, Gemini, and others, um, are collecting information on uh, their users so that those users, so that the IRS has more information about them so they can pay more tax, right? Um, the assumption is that people in crypto don't pay their taxes. That's also not true, by the way, but whatever. That's the objective. But as it was written, it could have potentially included everything from uh, Bitcoin miners to people who stake tokens in um, networks like Cosmos and Polkadot and um, other proof of stake networks uh, to software developers that develop uh, applications that run on decentralized exchanges like Uniswap to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like it could have uh, ultimately encompassed all these entities that not only um, aren't brokers, they, they themselves couldn't comply with the law because there's no way for them to access that information. So blah, 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 blah. Where, where we're at right now is that the bill as it's been approved by the Senate is now in the House of Representatives. Reminder for everyone else, U.S. civics class, both chambers need to agree to some version of the bill. Um, the bill could get changed. And it's at that point that advocates and lobbyists for the industry are going to try and push the crypto caucus in the House of Representatives to put forth a, a, a version of the amendment from the Senate that would allow for these issues to be solved. That's the stage that we're at right now. This is something that is going to now play out over the next 
that couple of weeks. So like I said, it was a defeat in the short term, but in the long term, um, there could be light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, good summary. So I've been writing about this uh, for the BRI. And j just so that we can step back a second here and understand why this is a very badly conceived bill. Um, sure, the, uh, you know, people ought to pay their capital gains taxes and the industry uh, should be part of every other industry and, and taxed appropriately. But what was proposed, meaning that digital asset exchanges and brokers should have reporting requirements. Um, but the bill expanded this definition of broker to include, and I'll quote it here, any person who for consideration regularly provides any service responsible for affecting transfer of digital assets, including any decentralized exchange or peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. So this could include basically every kind of participant in the industry, from, as you said, from miners and validators, software development, uh, developers, node operators. I mean, it could even include us for doing research. Are, are we, you know, helping um, ex uh, um, uh, to contribute to services affecting the transfer of digital assets? So let me just take a second here for everybody and understand why this is so dumb. Um, and, and just consider some of the groups that I mentioned there. Miners, um, okay, they verify transactions, uh, some by uh, proof of work, and that requires them to donate their computing power. And in exchange, as everyone uh, probably watching this knows, they receive some cryptocurrency from that blockchain. Uh, but they have nothing to do with onboarding buyers and sellers. They hold no data or the identities of the participants, so they could not actually report on these people. Validators, okay, for proof of stake environments, um, uh, you know, uh, people anonymously stake some of their assets, keep the network going. But like miners, they have no means of screening the identities of participants. And as for exchanges, sure, I mean, typical exchanges like Coinbase or uh, Gemini should uh, comply with, um, with law with tax laws. But increasingly, and this is the direction, these exchanges are becoming fully uh, decentralized, distributed. There's no central authority to identify or uh, to uh, report on um, on individual transactions in the network. You know, well, what, what you mean by that, just to clarify, is not that Gemini and Coinbase themselves are becoming decentralized, that, that increasingly yeah. a lot of exchanging of value is occurring on decentralized exchanges, yeah. right? Yeah. As opposed to Coinbase. As opposed to, yeah. As opposed to Coinbase and, and Gemini. So, uh, you know, just, just I'm trying to go back and think of some analogies, okay? The 1980s, I started, uh, was actually in the 70s, using a modem, 300 bits per second. Well, well imagine if all modem owners were defined as private delivery service providers. Uh, in the 1980s and in the 80s and taxed on the number of emails that they exchanged to make up for lost revenue and for the US Postal Service. Or if uh, in the 90s, if internet service providers had to gather detailed information on every person using the web and report that somehow uh, to authorities, to the IRS. The, you know, today it's only countries like China that have that you know, surveillance states that have that capability. Yeah. So, so, but the big point here, I think, is like 
this is, well, there are two big points. One is that there's a real problem of making legislation in that area when you have Congress that knows nothing about this. Now, I haven't agreed with hardly much that Ted Cruz has said over the years, but here we've got him saying, there aren't five senators in this body with any real understanding of how cryptocurrency operates. Um, now, actually, he may be uh, guilty of a sort of an uncharacteristic <laughs> understatement uh, on that one. And this problem here is that, you know, neither Congress nor the public understands what these uh, things are. Yeah. And that's the first problem. The second problem is this is no way to develop policy around this critical uh, uh, technology, tucking, you know, really critical uh, legislation that will affect the entire industry into a bill like that, and then sub, sub, uh, subjecting it to this bizarre process where a single octogenarian senator might be responsible for a law that re requires a whole part of the industry to move out of the United States, or at minimum, really hurts uh, the industry. So what should be done? Well, that's what we, I mean, sorry, were you going to say something? No, no. You just Continue, agree, please. Oh, that's good. Alex is agreeing. Um, but um, I mean, what is needed is what we described in our Biden Harris report on on technology strategy for the second era of the digital age. It's called New Directions for Government: The Second Era of the Digital Age Strategy, Policy, and Action for the Biden Harris administration. We argued that we need a national. Uh, a collaborative and consultative process to come up with um, an overall strategy for digital assets, fintech, crypto, and even more broadly for, for blockchain, as this is the second era of the internet. And, and let's have a thoughtful discussion where all of the stakeholders can get involved and then come up with some legislation that is going to help, on the one hand, raise taxes where they are, should appropriately be raised, protect investors and consumers where it's appropriate, but on the other hand, to encourage the development of this extraordinary industry and an innovation economy overall. Um, so that's what's really needed. Now, in the short term, there's still a chance here. Um, you know, the, 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 the House can still amend these provisions before passing the infrastructure bill. Yeah. And um, and there's a massive campaign that's being carried by uh, folks like Jerry Brito and the Chamber of uh, Digital Commerce and so on to try and make that happen. So all is not lost here, but it, it's a reminder that there are certain vulnerabilities that exist, as we pointed out in Blockchain Revolution, or certain challenges that could really hurt this thing that everyone in the industry or everyone who cares about this needs to be very uh, uh, vigilant about and be active in trying to to uh, help avoid. Yeah, brilliantly said. And I think that there's th your thoughts will be appearing at some point soon in an article that will be available for everyone to read. I think everyone knows that a lot of the work we do with BRI is, um, you know, proprietary to the to our members. But on these kinds of issues, we uh, we hope to you know get as many people as possible to to, to yeah. see and hear what we're thinking. Um, so that's great. Um, by the way, the, the, the other big hot, hot thing that has just come out, maybe you could comment on it, is this hack of the poly network. 
Mm -hmm. $600 million, largely of ether, uh, was stolen by hackers. And then this is, this is kind of bizarre um, that the, the hackers gave back some of it. Oh, that's nice. Uh, they were like $260 million. But um, what's going on here? I thought blockchains were unhackable. And, um, and uh, apparently the, the public addresses of the hackers are known and there's a big campaign to sort of pressure them to give back uh, the money. Uh, yeah. Something going on here and you don't know what it is. Alex? Yeah, so um, the let's start with what, what, what happened. And I won't get too technical, but basically the blockchain itself wasn't hacked. In, in that sense, there wasn't you know, a brute force attack, a 51% attack where a bunch of blocks were rolled back. What happened was that um, a smart contract in the poly network was exploited. There was month. There was value locked in the network, and so you know, in certain DeFi protocols, um, you can lock value in various kinds of tokens. The majority was ETH, just because that's normally what it is with these kinds of things. It's usually ETH and stable coins, um, and that money um, was basically um, stolen. In effect, through uh, through an ex exploitation of a flaw in the smart contract. Um, now the hacker <laughs> was. Uh, was identified very quickly um, in terms of their the their all, not just their addresses obviously that's all available on the blockchain but also their their actual address email address you know and, and all this other information and within a few hours of the initial hack taking place um, the hacker was bargaining with the poly network uh, on returning all the funds and you're right that some of the funds have been returned and my understanding is that um, the objective or his objective their objective is to return all the money so what does this tell us so number one it's uh evidence that you know uh DeFi, so if that smart contracts are still code written by people and they're not infallible and so there's still opportunities for exploitation and that's certainly true with new networks like the poly network um the on the other hand it shows the sort of level of radical transparency and responsiveness yeah, of, of blockchain networks you know, $600 million um, could go missing in the world of traditional financial services mm -hmm. and not be identified for weeks or months or even years, if, if, if ever. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the, you know, the Goldman Sachs 1MD scandal that got them in hot water where they basically were embezzling, uh, helping to embezzle billions of dollars. That took years to uncover that fraud. So in this example, we have something that took a matter of minutes or hours before the funds were the 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 hack was being rectified and the funds are being returned so um i think it's an interesting example of the kind of radical uh, transparency and responsiveness that can occur in this industry i'm not saying it's totally sanguine and let's all not worry about it i mean the fact of the matter is that um a lot of these protocols especially new ones are risky and investors should understand that before they start locking their money up in them um you know similarly if you were you know, investing your money into a risky business venture, um, you know, you have a high expectation of maybe not getting all that money back. Um, and I think people don't really realize that. Um, no, well, I should say, I think most of the participants in the DeFi space actually do realize that, but people in the mainstream uh, do not. Um, so that's something that I think everyone needs to be more aware of. But yeah, definitely an interesting episode. It's also just very revealing that, you know, this kind of thing just sort of passes and uh, comes and goes in terms of its impact on you know the broader industry it's like yeah you know this one entity didn't do a good job of uh, auditing um yeah. their smart contract that was their fault as a as a project uh does is an indictment of 
crypto or blockchain technology. Nope. It's just one company that did a bad job. Right. And I think that shows a maturation to an extent of how we think and talk about this industry. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And the, the price of, or the, the overall value of the um, digital assets on blockchains do not decline at all as a result of this. In fact, we're up. Yeah. But weirdly, we continue, the whole industry continues to be up despite all this, uh, uh, all these shenanigans going on in Congress as well. I don't know how to interpret that, that, uh, that maybe the industry as a whole is a market and markets are pretty smart. They're pretty sophisticated. And in this case, they have uh, some confidence um, that the poly problem was not a problem with blockchains. It was a problem with the smart contracts. And if you're going to put a lot of money in a smart contract, you better make sure there aren't any coding errors or that it's uh, bulletproof. But for the industry overall and, and the legislation, it seems that um, that that the insider view is that this is going to get worked out somehow. Yeah. The Congress is not going to kill this whole thing um, because well, I think the there are two other interpretations as well. Yeah. Um, one is that this is a global industry. And so it could be that the U.S. misses out, but the industry itself continues to thrive. Yeah. Um, that's one. Well, that was true in the case of China um, when they banned uh, mining. It was like short term pain for long term gain. And overall, the industry bounced back really quickly because they knew yeah. the mining would occur elsewhere. That's right. And then the other, that's exactly right. And then the other, the other argument is, wow, I think the world kind of woke up to the clout and influence of the crypto uh, industry. You know, I think a lot of, you know, reporters in the beltway who are used to covering Congress were like, what's crypto? And wait, does crypto have a lobbying, you know, arm? And there yeah. is a crypto caucus in the Senate and in the House, and yeah. there are governors who support this stuff. And I think they sort of woke up to the potential um, clout and power of an industry that has created $1.8 trillion in wealth and has spawned dozens of unicorns and has plenty of really wealthy and influential people yeah. who might be able to, who might now realize that they have to throw their weight around a little bit in um, in the realm of government. I, you know, I, I think was actually quite struck by the power of that lobby. Like yeah. every single senator had people all over him or her yeah. sort of working this issue. We heard 20,000 calls were made uh, in a day. And it's interesting, you know, this is a lobby where, you know, it's, it's, it's disaggregated. I mean, you've got individuals, regular people, constituents in every single state and every single county or district or whatever that, that are affected by this because it's their, their, they have assets and wealth at stake. You know, yeah. this isn't the, um, the aerospace lobby where it's sort of an abstraction, like, yeah. you know, individuals are not going to call to save yeah. Airbus or something, yeah. but they're going to call if it affects their bottom line and their pocketbooks. Right. I mean, it's the ultimate, it's a digital pocketbook issue. Um, you know, maybe we should coin that phrase. Um, it's uh, and it was revealing. I also think the industry itself sort of woke up to its own strength, you know, kind of like a, a teenager who, who wakes up and realizes that they can, you know, bench press 250 pounds for the first time, you know, they were a child and then they, you know, became a, a man. <laughs> are, you, are you speaking of, of your personal experience? Yeah, then? maybe this is a, a, a metaphor that doesn't apply to everybody, but <laughs> at least in my experience, it's like, oh, wow, geez, like, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a kid. Um, so anyway, so 
That's it's one of those one of those I remember that day actually <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those things where you know come come hell or high water it's like wow we've got real clout and influence and this is going to be a, a, a part of american life and american yeah. economic um the economy for, and government for for years yeah. and decades to come and that i think is something that is very revealing and probably helped to give people more confidence yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, what a cool environment you're in. Mm. Uh, I kind of know where it was, uh, is. I just saw, I think it was the CEO of Palm Inc. walk by there with a computer. Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> yes, this, this is um, its headquarters around here. A lot of, lot, of, lot of business going on in this wood cabin, you know. Uh, I'm in New Brunswick, Canada, which is a small province on the east coast of Canada. Uh, it's a gorgeous country, beautiful place, the undiscovered country in Canada. Um, I would strongly encourage people to check it out for themselves. Wow. <laughs> Are you part of the New Brunswick tourist board or something? We all try to do our part, you know. Well, I'm actually in Toronto. I'm trying a fake background here for a while. Yeah. Uh, but I don't have a green screen. I did yesterday. I don't have one today, so it may be a little flaky. But... It looks good, except when you move your hand like this, it looks like you have webbed fingers. Oh. So. <laughs> it's a way of disguising the fact that I actually have grown web fingers. Yeah, anyway, exactly. <laughs> enough yeah. silliness. Uh, that's uh, what's on top for this week. Hey, uh, everybody, Enterprise Blockchain Awards. Uh, the deadline is next week. Go to blockchainrevolutionglobal.com, blockchainrevolutionglobal.com, and click on awards and get your applications in. I tell you, there are some gorgeous applications that are coming in. And we have an independent judging panel. It's headed by Irving Wadesky Berger, the legendary IBM executive who got Lou Gerser and IBM into the internet. And um, we're quite excited about the award ceremony, which will be uh, physical as well as virtual black tie event on November the 16th happening uh, in Toronto. The Enterprise Blockchain Awards, get your nominations in. Um, anything else for you, Alex? No, that's it. Great discussion. Um, we'll see everybody next week. Okay, take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.